Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric and Matt, and this is Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit, your beacon of freedom and the American way of life. Tune in every Friday for a new episode as we dive into the world of liberty and what makes our country great. All right, guys. Hope you've had a great week, and welcome back. Eric and Matt here with LLP. Hello. If you're tuning back in on the YouTube channel, thanks for watching here on Iraq Veteran 8888. If you're tuning in on podcasts and listening, thanks for joining us again this Friday and or Saturday. Um, today's episode is going to be pretty interesting. We're going to dive into what does the future of the Second Amendment hold? Very, wow. very important conversation. Wow, yeah. This, this conversation is going to be pretty deep and go into a lot of different areas. And, uh, you know, we're definitely going to dive into this. It's going to be a ton of fun. I can't wait uh, to discuss some of this stuff. Uh, before we get started, I would like to thank our friends at RMA Armament for supporting LLP and Gun Gripes. Uh, great group of people, all American made body armor. They got some great hard armor options, all NIJ certified. Veteran-owned and operated, great prices. We've done a lot of testing on their armor. It's held up really great, um, and we have a lot more testing to come. And I think in terms of an armor company, I don't think we've done more testing for one company's armor as much as what we've done for them. And I've, I've been thoroughly and consistently impressed with the quality of their products for the oh, money. Yeah. And uh, check them out, RMA Armament, and tell them we sent you. All right. So we're going to dive into this. And uh, when we say the future of the Second Amendment, that might be possibly the wrong thing to say. The future of gun ownership. I mean, we know that the Second Amendment's not going away. I mean, in order for the Second Amendment and what it solidifies for us to completely just disappear overnight, it would take a pretty considerable amount of uh, treachery <laughs> and for tyranny. It to go away. Yeah, treachery, tyranny, a lot of backhanded, backroom sneakiness. And I think that. What we've seen so far shows that there there just isn't the support in uh, Congress to get that done. Um, when you saw the the whole like red flag sneaky thing that happened, immediately when that came to light, you saw a lot of representatives come out and say, "Hey, this is unconstitutional." And as soon as that happened, the floodgates opened. So you, there are a certain group of people that are like, oh, yeah, the government is colluding against it. This, this might be true. However, there's still an astronomical amount of support, both from the general public, which are, you know, gun-owning Americans, and with those representatives that we placed in Washington. That's right. You know, I, I think the idea of gun ownership in the United States it's never going to go away. I mean, there are more guns out there uh, than there's a ton, right? <laughs> and they're not going anywhere. And there's a lot of gun owners. And I think that gun ownership is becoming much more of a a choice that many people are deciding to have an undertaking in. Um, and it's not really like a political type of thing anymore for a lot of people. So you're seeing a lot of Democrats that are getting into owning guns and that do openly support gun ownership. You're seeing people on the on both sides of the aisle, obviously plenty of Republicans that have always been sort of traditionally pro-gun. Uh, but you also see a little yeah. bit in both ends of the spectrum where you see there's Republicans that are supposed to be pro-gun and they're not. Yeah. Like, look at Florida. You know, Florida, despite being a red state and having a lot of Republicans in their state, 
they tend to have a lot of difficulty getting things like, um, you know, carry national or uh, statewide carry reciprocity passed, you know, or constitutional carry, if you will, uh, despite being a, a Republican uh, controlled state. So that's kind of odd, right? When you see traditionally, you would expect a red state to uh, stone roll through any type of statewide legislation that you'd want to see when it comes to pro-gun legislation, not always black and white, right? Same thing. Look at Joe Manchin up in West Virginia, you know, uh, being relatively firm in his convictions on uh, various matters in politics and, and gun ownership, right? So it's not such a black and white thing anymore. You can't just look at um, the D or the R next to the name and assume that uh, they're going to hold the traditional positions on the Second Amendment that they always have. It's just simply not the case, right? If anything, I would say, not to make it all political, but but since we are kind of discussing the politics of it, that you do get into the situation where you actually have to be even more strict on the people uh, that you're electing and holding them much more accountable than you normally would because you have to assume that they could um, look either way on a given topic, especially something as important as the Second Amendment. Right now here, we're in late October 2021, uh, just as a date hack here for you. And the sec- uh, the uh, Supreme Court is going to be hearing some Second Amendment cases. And finally, yeah, it, 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 it has been treated as a second rate right. And it has not been given the sanctity it deserves in the courts, especially in the Supreme Court. So I think that there are a lot of Democrats, per se, or anti-gunners. Let's just call them anti-gunners because there's there's people that hate guns on both sides of the aisle. But there's a lot of anti-gunners that are in their death throes right now when it comes to you know where they're at in their you know efforts that they're trying to undergo because they see the writing on the wall that the Supreme Court is likely going to see things in our way and and hopefully solidify and further some of our rights to the constitutional level that they deserve to be at to get the Second Amendment to the constitutional level that it should be and it when you look at the Second Amendment it's one of the most clearly written terms in the Constitution, right? And when you look at it in its totality and the way it's written, it's a pretty clear set of instructions, right? Shall not be infringed is some pretty strong language when it comes to English language, period, but also for constitutional language. So it would be very difficult for me to see the Supreme Court view anything that comes across their desk related to the Second Amendment in any other way because it says shall not be infringed. So it's kind of hard to refute that language or to you know, look at it in any, any other sort of way. In the past, a lot of times the Supreme Court has chosen to stay away from certain uh, political or hot-button issues for whatever various reasons they may uh, you know, support, mainly because a lot of the things you've, you've heard the Supreme Court talk about, they may end up saying, well, uh, the Supreme Court doesn't deal in politics. We don't get involved in the political process, right? That very well may be true, and it may be historically true for the for the Supreme Court. But I think we're getting to a point now uh, where the Supreme Court they understand that this is not going away, and that people are really, really ticked off that the Second Amendment has not gotten the proper respect it deserves in the courts, especially when it's such a sternly and 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 directly worded uh, piece of you know content. You look at, that. I mean it pretty freaking clear in what it means yeah, i mean it's, it's probably one of the shortest amendments that there are you know because it's very concise so it's 
very to the point. That's right. So if you look at um, you know what's going on in Florida, like you said, it's tr- it's a red state, but there it traditionally is anti-gun. And if you kind of look at it as a whole, it's a very interesting uh, setup that Florida has. So Florida has two groups of people that are complete opposites. So one is there's a huge community uh, of Cubans and Cubans come from a communist country. They've immigrated uh, from Cuba, obviously. Um, And they know what it's like to live under tyranny. And if you go to Miami or you go to South Florida, um, they're very supportive of the constitution, the freedoms that we have in the second amendment. But on the opposite side, there is a very large group of elderly Americans. Typically, they are set up on Social Security, uh, government benefits. That is all federal income, federal money. So now you have representatives that are kind of stuck in the middle. They have half of their constituents that are uh, Republican or red uh, immigrants that love freedom. And then you have another half that are Americans that rely on the federal subsidies and federal income to survive and uh, for their retirement in Florida. So that does put them in a precarious situation as a representative of their constituents because it's almost like a lose-lose in their mind. If they support something that is going against the establishment, against the government, then they hurt one side of their constituents. And I'm just playing devil's advocate here, so don't take this as me trying to uh, position this in a good or bad way. But at the same time, if they uh, solely go anti-gun, then they kind of turn their backs on the the Floridians that really came to this country to build a better life based off of what America originally stood for, which was freedom. So it is a very interesting dynamic in that state. And I I wouldn't know what to do because you do have two groups of people that are depending on you as a representative to help provide them and set them up for a better life. Well, that's a very astute observation. So when we look at the future of what all of this means for us, um, you know, it's probably important to ask, well, who is the future? It's not Mm. what is the future of the Second Amendment, who is the future of the Second Amendment? And you can pretty definitively uh, define, you know, what that is with just a little bit of uh, statistics and data. You look at the NSSF and some of the reports that they put out, uh, which I won't reference here. I don't have them pulled up right now. I am aware of some of the data, and I'll share some real loosely worded data just to give you, you know, kind of an idea there, right? Um, but also the uh, NICS checks and the amount of guns that are being sold. I mean, the last couple of years, we've seen a huge resurgence in gun culture. Uh, and new gun owners, right? Many, many female shooters, almost 50% of all of those new gun owners are female shooters, right? So ladies are scared. They see all this crap that's going on in the world around them, all this looting and all of the scary things and people getting robbed. And, you know, they want to be able to protect themselves and protect their households and stuff. And ladies have, you know, really just been getting into the Second Amendment and arming themselves. I think that's great, right? Women should take it upon themselves to protect themselves. And I think that's awesome, right? We see a lot of, and I hate, I really hate saying this term, but it's just, it's the term that's commonly used. So I'm just going to fall into into place and just use the term that's used. But like minorities, All right. uh, there's a ton of minorities uh, that are purchasing firearms. And that's great, right? To see that these 
communities of people that maybe traditionally, maybe they didn't feel one way or the other about guns. You know, they didn't hate them or love them. They just were indifferent, right? Whether that was the reason, or maybe it was because the parties they traditionally supported didn't support guns, so they didn't support guns as as a you know result. Oh, or maybe they're just starting to go, you know what, I'm going to think for myself and I'm going to be my own person and I'm not going to worry about what the heck all these other people are trying to tell me to do because they obviously aren't putting us in a better place in life, right? We're going to think this out for ourselves and we're going to abandon those people and think as individuals. Maybe that's the reason, right? Maybe it's just a response to the times. They're worried, right, that they're going to be harmed by people, whatever the case may be. Whatever the reason is, that's the reality. The future is that the face of gun ownership is changing a heck of a lot, and it's starting to encompass a much wider range of people than what have traditionally been gun owners, right? The federal government, the media, social media, all these pundits and blue checks and talking heads and everything, they push the narrative that guns are only tools that are used by these crazy people in the woods. And, you know, it's just so random. I I don't even want to acknowledge what they claim gun ownership revolves around because it's just simply not true. What a lot of this comes down to is, is they've never actually met gun owners. They don't bother to get out there and actually have the conversations and talk to people that own guns. They just assume that people will just be spoon-fed this information and they'll take it for face value and not do their own research. And that's where they're losing, tremendously losing the battle um, for trying to infringe on Second Amendment rights because the Second Amendment is not so much part of a political movement or part of a party or even part of a given demographic. The Second Amendment has been more widely accepted as a right, and gun ownership has been more widely accepted as just being a normal part of American society for so long now and so consistently, and has seen such resurgence here that folks just go, well, all right, I'm going to vote this way or that way, but don't take my dang guns. We're not dealing with that. Not to mention you've seen a humongous resurgence in NFA ownership. Lots of people are buying suppressors yep. and and doing like you know short barrel shotguns and SBRs, rifles and things yeah. and SBRs and machine guns. So um, NFA has become so much more commonplace in a wider variety and and background uh, level of Americans than any other time in the history of the United States. So primarily also in younger folks. There's lots of folks that are coming of age. They're just turning 21. All right, what have they spent? A 21, 22-year-old right now, what have they spent the last like 10 years of their life probably doing? Call of Duty. Call of Duty. (laughs) Video games and first-person shooters and things like that. And it's fun. But what does that do? It also ingrains guns in our culture, Mm -hmm. right, at a background level where someone goes, all right, well, when I'm 14, 15 years old, I'm playing these games and I'm learning sort of in it inadvertently learning about guns as I go and I'm enjoying these things, when they get older, they go, oh, wow, I can own that, right? So they're buying a Daniel Defense Mark 18 and putting Mm -hmm. a suppressor on it, and they're becoming NFA owners, whereby you look at 30, 40 years ago, NFA was sort of a niche thing, and not everyone owned machine guns. It was almost taboo. Yeah. It was almost like, oh, you know, it's much more commonplace culturally and over a wider variety of different people in terms of demographics. Yeah. And I mean, I'll be honest, that 
first time that I learned about a lot of these uh, guns that are now defunct was through Call of Duty. I remember, you know, you're looking at the Chris Vectors, the ACRs, like the SCARs, all of these stuff, all of these guns that are going into video games. And I'm dating myself, but that was like Modern Warfare 2, like way back in the day. Um, and that is what kind of brings in those new future gun owners. But education goes so far. And it's not like education as in like a school education, but being educated on firearms. When you look at something like um, like Autumn's Armory, Autumn's Armory, eight-year-old girl, great firearms discipline. You know, her father's teaching her how to do it right. I show those videos to my daughter. She's eight. I show those to my daughter. My daughter's five. So my daughter's watching these YouTube videos going, wow, that is so cool. I didn't know that, you know, you could do that at that age. I thought you had to be an adult. Well, no, under the proper supervision and, and, and the proper training and learning that as you grow up, it's, it becomes very natural and very normal. And there's nothing wrong with that. And then when you start looking at, you know, the next generation of gun owners, the easiest way to quell a rebellion is to first take out the education. So, and just to give you an example, the whole thing about Afghanistan, the reason that Afghanistan has been such a hard battle is because over 80% of the population doesn't have an education. They can't read, they can't write. That makes it very difficult to help rebuild that country. Well, what if you took that same concept and put it in to say firearms education? If if 80 or 90% of the American population isn't educated about firearms, then they're ignorant. And there's nothing wrong with being ignorant. Ignorant just means you haven't learned it yet. But if you're already ignorant about it, then you have an innate fear of it, which is what you see. A lot of people that don't understand firearms are automatically scared of it. But once you learn and educate yourself and get maybe educated on it, then you're fine. You understand that it's just a tool. But education is really that stepping stone to the Second Amendment. Because just like I said, I grew up with Modern Warfare, Call of Duty. The next generation is growing up with the same video games, and that kind of picks their interest. They're going, oh, man, that's that's really cool. And then they seek it out and say YouTube videos. So now... Eric, you're doing a meltdown on an ACR. This is not happening, but I'm just using it as an example. Don't get your hopes up. Um, but And then you start going down that rabbit hole of like, oh, well, that's an NFA item. How does that work? Oh, it's a it's a trans... You can't get them transferred because they, they're post-86, but if I get an FFL, then I can... Get, so it just opens up all of these different gateways that it's a better educated consumer. I agree. And that that's a very great observation there, Matt. And one thing I'll, I'll sort of bounce back to as well on that concept is the very culture of what guns mean in our society has changed very much over the last 40, 50 years as well. Right. You know, you know, 50, 60 years ago or 50 years ago, you know, folks that were into guns were probably primarily into hunting and things like that, you know, and obviously hunting is still a huge deal. In fact, Lots of folks are getting into hunting and uh, many, many people are getting more into deer hunting and, and other forms of of uh, of conservation and hunting conservation uh, than they have in previous years. So that aspect of it is growing, too. But the face of what gun culture is has changed very much, too. When you look at the 80s, right, late 70s, early 80s, 
you know, um, there was this huge movement, like this prepper movement. And that was a huge thing in the 80s, the whole prepper thing. Extreme preppers. Yeah, folks <laughs> were, you know, buying food and guns and ammo. And it was almost negatively looked upon by a lot of people. They thought, That's oh, right. you're one of those preppers, those doomsday people. Yeah, you doomsday that, preppers. Yeah, everything is going to pot or whatever. Now, granted, you're you're certainly seeing that in today's world a little bit where, you know, some folks are trying to be a little bit more prepared than others. I mean, sure, you're always going to have that. But that movement had a negative connotation to it to a lot of folks. And the mainstream gun community back in the 80s, they weren't quite so on board the idea of having, you know, a full auto M16 and a bunch of mags and ammo and extra food and water. They didn't see the necessity of it because they didn't associate it uh, with anything that was important to their life. Not that they were against it or for it. They were just indifferent. Again, you see that that theme is reoccurring now, right? Whereby now in today's culture, um, you know, AR-15s and AK-47s and machine guns and all different types of these black rifles that the media uh, vilifies on a regular basis are much more widely accepted as a normal part of our society. You know, not only that, but you see plenty of forums and plenty of uh, online areas where folks, uh, you know, have communities regarding, you know, food preparation and food storage and reloading ammunition and gunsmithing and all of the different things that uh, are involved in the Second Amendment and the shooting um, and everything. So you see that it's now not this negative connotation where someone is crazy just because they want to own, you know, a couple of guns to protect their family, right? You've got a wide variety of different people owning firearms from many different backgrounds um, that they go, well, you know what? I might have been indifferent about this a few years ago and not really cared one way or the other. But now, because all the crazy things going on, I can understand why it's important that, you know, I, I want to own an AR-15 and a few mags, maybe a carrier and some armor, get some training, that sort of thing. And it's not a big deal anymore because they see, wow, things can go south. People are crazy. And, you know, protecting myself doesn't make me weird. It just means that I want to protect myself. So you're seeing that in our culture a lot more that the culture of self-preservation, the culture of gun ownership as a as a path to self-preservation is much more accepted now than what it was 40 or 50 years ago. And to, you know, sort of cultivate that full circle, you're also in a double whammy. You're getting many, many more people now that are getting into hunting than ever before. And ladies, I know you're, some of you are listening. Uh, we've got some. more ladies getting into hunting now than ever. So now you've got this compounded to where you've got not only all these ladies are buying guns, but now ladies are getting into hunting. Um, from a marketing standpoint, you're seeing all this clothing and gear and guns and and all these accessories and even ammunition being specifically marketed towards lady shooters to get them interested and get them into hunting and into shooting and, and self-preservation and self-defense. And that's cool, right? That's interesting to see um, that there's a whole facet of people that are getting into the Second Amendment in many different ways. And uh, and it's much more normalized now than it was 30, 40 years ago. Agreed. Uh, and But you still have to be careful of, you know, those individuals that, you know, the old, I'm pro two-way, but you know, just because you're a gun owner doesn't mean that you're pro two-way. So a good uh, a good example of that and i know that you touched on it earlier about the politicians eric was that they're 
you know, there are Republicans that are tra- the Republicans are traditionally pro two A, and then there's some that you know aren't. And then on the exact opposite side, there's Democrats that traditionally are supposed to be anti gun that are. What I will tell you is that within the last, I would say, hmm, the last month or so, there's been a few Democrats that have that have either decided to leave the party or are thinking about leaving the party, which is interesting. And one of them being Tulsi Gabbard. And she didn't openly say that she was leaving the Democratic Party, but there was an interview that I watched and they they straight asked her, and I sent that to you just because it blew me away. Eric. I, I sent it over to Eric because I was like, dude, this is crazy. The The reporter said, hey, are you a Democrat? And she kind of paused and she had to think about it for about a good five seconds. And she said- That's the answer. Yeah. And then she said, yes. And I was like, no. <laughs> the real answer Her mouth no. said one thing, her <laughs> face said another. Yes. And then they followed up with another question and she and then she gave him the old like political switcheroo and, and didn't answer it, but kind of told you what the agenda was. And at that moment, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if she's still going to be in there. That's right. I don't. I, I don't dislike Tulsi. I think she's a good person. I I like her. I just wish that she was on the Second Amendment. And tra- you I mean, never she, know. People she's change. Not as pro gun, you know, she's not pro gun at all. And I find that to be odd because I consider her a fiercely logical person, and all of her arguments are very well founded. Like some of the stuff that she comes up with, it kind of goes, "Wow, you know, that's that's great thinking. That's forward mm-hmm. thinking." That's kind. Like, her heart is kind. The things she posts, you can tell some of the stuff just comes from the heart that she says, and you can tell, like, wow, she really means what she's saying. That's just her so little house spirit, So to think that that logic, that fierce logic that she's totally capable of, and that she's not pro-gun, is maybe that she just hasn't had the right conversation with the right, right person and, and been articulated to in the correct way as to, you know, what her opinion should really be. Or maybe she just hasn't put enough stock in gathering the facts to really come up with an informed opinion. And again, someone like Tulsi, for instance, maybe she's indifferent. Maybe she do, she's not pro or anti, but that she just toes a line of the party because that's what she has to do, get reelected or to run for prospective office. Mm-hmm. So see, there's a lot of things that go into that, right? I mean, can Tulsi come over to that to the side of freedom in regards to the Second Amendment? I believe the answer is yes. I think she can, right? And then, all right, another end of that token we might go on not to get too far into politics, but like, look at Dan Crimshaw, right? I mean, a lot of people consider him McCain 2.0. And, you know, there's a lot of things on the surface where you're like, okay, this guy's, you know, former military, serves his country, you know, he's Republican. So you would think, well, well, that's a recipe for obviously this guy's pro-gun. You you would just assume that someone like that is pro-gun and could never, you know, go any other way in that regard, right? But then you look at the red flag laws and the, and some of those proposals and the extreme risk protection you mean, orders. You mean the high risk protection orders, yeah, Eric, so, not red flags. It, right. High risk protection. So, there's a lot of things like that. I mean, there's there's been photos of him with like Moms Demand Action and stuff. So it's like, is he just going through the motions to Tapsacked. you know, to to just save face enough to just please whoever he needs to please to get elected? I mean, who knows, right? I mean, I've I don't think Dan is a terrible person. I think that some of some of the stuff that he articulates and puts out, I agree with very much so, right? I mean, Dan is obviously a pretty smart guy, and some of the things that he puts out, I, I totally agree with, right? So just like Tulsi, where, yeah, we may not agree on the Second Amendment aspect of her policy, she is 
a good person. Can like we- you can tell she she has a very good brain, you know, between her mm-hmm. ears. And I think Dan is the same. Like Dan is a very intelligent and capable guy, you know, and I think some of the things that he puts out are very, very well thought out. I just wish that we could really dial in that Second Amendment stuff in a way that it, it, it is clear and concise and, and movable. And I just feel like there's a little bit there that you can't quite put your finger on as being, you know, is he really 110% mm-hmm. pro 2A? I mean, then again, how many of them really are? Even if they say they are. That's right. You have to look at their voting record. You have to look That's at how right. they vote on policy, what policy they sign on and, and, and support, right? What they co-sponsor, what they propose. I mean, so... Mm, anyone can say whatever they want, but in practice is where the rubber meets the road in right. terms of what you can really dial in as being, you know, their true stance on that situation. Well, do you think you you think the outcome would be better if you had someone like Tulsi that you could possibly, like maybe she's indifferent and she just has to have that right conversation and would that mean she switches parties and then, yeah, or would it be better to have someone like Crenshaw, which is obviously has already voted quite a few times on red flags, but he's, I mean, he says he's pro tweet, but obviously his voting record says that like, what's a better option? Is it to play red Rover and like, yeah, swap them? I don't know. Well, I think that's one of the battles with the second amendment that we're going to be fighting over these coming years, right? You've got a lot of the old guard, politicians that are getting out of politics they're retiring a lot of them are, are in their 80s dying. I mean, look at I, I even read something that Pelosi was you know actually talking about just stepping down and retiring as speaker of the house because gosh she's in her 80s I mean so a lot of these you know file and rank politicians are just either dying off or getting old and retiring and and you know they're just not capable of doing the job anymore I mean it, it gets to a point where you know you got to eventually settle down and retire mm-hmm. And and there's a lot of that going on. A lot of these rank-and-file politicians are getting out of politics, so you're getting a lot of new blood in there. And part of the issue with the new blood is, you know, all right, a freshman politician, fresh on the Hill in the Senate or in Congress or whatever, right, um, they end up getting to the point where, well, you're going to sit there and, and you're going to observe and we're going to call you up for a vote and you're going to vote whenever we tell you to vote. And But other than that, you're not going to be privy to any of these talks that us senior politicians yeah. are going to have. We have our you know, own little groups. Yeah, and stuff we're like going to have the real power, and you're you're going to vote, of course, but you're not going to have any real say in any of the deals that go on and how we, you know, undergo the legislative process. So you're seeing a lot of freshman, uh, you know, politicians, you know, like Crimshaw and like Marjorie Green and and some of those folks, and like AOC is a freshman politician. She gets a lot of you know, FaceTime from the media. She's a media darling, of course, but she has no real power. There's just that assumed power uh, that people think because she's visible that she has a lot of power, but she really doesn't. She's just very visible and she's a freshman politician. So you're going to see a lot of politicians that are, you know, young and getting into politics and that we're going to have to really vet those people and see, hey, what is their track record really going to be in terms of how they vote and everything like that? So to segue back into the future of the Second Amendment and the future of gun ownership and everything, obviously we already talked about how the face of the Second Amendment is changing, the demographics of the Second Amendment is changing, the technology has changed. Also, um, the amount or the type of training that folks are undergoing and the competition levels 
Uh, there are more ways to do to to get into firearms competition mm-hmm. than there ever have been in the history of the Second Amendment. Right? Um, it's not just folks hanging out in the cow pasture shooting guns and and hanging out and having fun anymore. I mean, there are so many different shooting disciplines. You look at all the trainers, just even in the last five years that have stood up and gotten into firearms training. There are more ways to get trained on safety and, and tactics and technique than there ever have been. Yeah. And I've seen probably in the last two years, just, you know, this huge influx of trainers and there's nothing wrong with, you know, you wanting to become a trainer. I think, I think it's, it's great because it gives everybody an opportunity to learn from somebody there is going to be a point in time where there's a market saturation cap. Um, you know, with the way that the NYX checks have been going, you know, we're seeing record gun sales, record background checks, record ammunition sales, obviously, you know, a, in, being inundated with trainers. There's going to be a point in time where there's just not going to be uh, it's not going to be advantageous for people to do that. I say get it while the getting is good. But I would probably say in the next two years or so, everything's going to kind of flatten out. Maybe not on like the gun and ammunition, but like the training, the training side. I've even seen a ton of new businesses opening up with like virtual trainers. I'm getting I'm getting stuff pushed to my feed about at least three places here in Atlanta that are running like virtual like virtual firearms uh, like centers almost like what you see on like the the haley like the the haley strategic type stuff where it's like the big screens and you kind of got like pneumatic rifles and pneumatic handguns it's really cool stuff and it's really kind of opening it up to people that don't have the ability to go out to a flat range or they don't have the ability or maybe they don't have the training to get out to a flat range and shoot around barricades but you can go here it's like a dave and busters type environment you're you know you can you're not drinking or eating obviously because you're trying to simulate how it is in real life and you wouldn't be drinking a beer on the range (laughs) but it gives you the ability to get with your friends and and get used to and get comfortable shooting off of barricades shooting off of ledges because you know shooting static is it's fun but you and you think you want to go and shoot off barricades and shoot off all these cool stuffs and get into these weird wonky positions where you're on your side but it's very daunting. If you've not tried it, um, try doing a dry run first because it, 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 you do when the first time I did it, you do get a little bit of, uh, you know what they call imposter syndrome where you're down there and you have a, you know, you have a live weapon and you're like, should I even be doing this? Like you kind of have that split second thought and you're like, all right, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be super safe about it. Um, but do a dry run, but it, it is opening up that opportunity to everybody because you can be, you know, a 18 year old kid that goes in there. You can be a 50 year old guy that goes in there and you're still getting the same muscle memory and the same feeling and you're having a good time and it's, it's affordable. I think it was like the one, the prices that I'm seeing are like 40 bucks. Uh, so you go in there for like two hours, $40. You're not having to pay any like ammunition fees cause they're all pneumatic. Um, but this, it's really great to see this whole industry growing. So you have an influx of trainers. Those trainers obviously um, are making money because there's people that need to learn how to use their firearms. You have, um, you know, businesses that are opening. 
the like virtual businesses that are training people. You have new ammunition companies that are opening, even if they're remanufactured just for ranges and stuff. So I don't foresee the Second Amendment. Uh, obviously, it's not going away, but it's great to see the future of it to growing because you're going to see the next generation, like my daughter is going to be coming up in the same, you know, same age and she's going to be learning and then it's just going to be a good thing. I think if anything, we're seeing a renaissance yes. of gun ownership more than we are, you know, some degradation of the right. So you're absolutely right. I mean, when we look at just the industry, you know, we've talked a good bit of politics, actually, and we've we've talked a little bit about our, our moral responsibilities and some of the changing face of what's going on. But when we just look at, let's just say, the business side of things, the industry, right? Look at all the mergers that are occurring. Like, Look at all the large conglomerates that are buying up companies like crazy. Uh, you do get a little bit of a monopoly forming, and that can you know, sometimes be a little bit dangerous. I've read a few articles where some of the folks in the industry are concerned about ammo companies uh, sort of pooling together and and uh, being owned you know, by such one large overlord, so to speak. And then yep. let's just say um, having a monopoly on primers or powder or ammunition and stuff. Like Vista. And, and there's a little bit of a, a, you know, a perceived fear in that, but I don't think it's necessarily a terrible thing because I think if anything, what occurs is like when you look at Vista Outdoors, for instance, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, you look at federal and uh, you look at CCI, you look at, um, I guess, I think now they bought Remington Ammunition. Yeah, I think it's is. really cool because with the financial resources in place, they have the ability to really increase output. They can put out. Uh, more ammunition. They can actually service the uh, consumer demand much better. They can service the government and law enforcement demand much better and more efficiently. And I think in the long run, whereby, yeah, maybe they could dictate the prices in a little bit more stern of a way. Um, I don't think it's going to be at the level that they they still don't need to be competitive on mm-hmm. the pricing and everything in order to uh, you know stay in business and all. So I think there's room there for everyone and I believe that the gun industry is growing in droves, and it's growing in ways that we would never imagine. I mean, you look at the uh, availability of you know good quality multi-axis CNC machines, um, the availability of uh, of you know reloading machines and stuff like that, and you know you've even got these really smart individuals out there that are actually designing their own loaders and stuff and making their own loaders with their own CNC machines. So now you've got machines making machines, right? <laughs> it's so like it's, Inception. Yeah. So there's <laughs> lots of cool stuff going on in that regard. There's never been a more technologically capable Second Amendment community than what there is now. You look at the advent of 3D printers and the 3D printing community, and those guys are doing really great work and just coming up with some awesome next-level stuff that allows you to really dial in some things that have never been available for before. So there's a lot of that going on. Um, so I think the future is bright, not only from the standpoint of our rights and the holistic nature of, of what that means to us, but also the cultural impact that the Second Amendment has for us, and the financial uh, manufacturing, let's just say economical impact, you've got more jobs being created than ever um, from tons of different Second Amendment-related companies coming in um, into fruition. Uh, we're going to go ahead and take a moment here. I'm going to refer to the Twitter desk here, and I'm going to refresh the page, and we're going to take a couple of comments and questions from Twitter. Oh, um, joy. So I posed a question earlier. I said, I'd like to field some of your questions in our last LLP episode of the day. 
How, um, what do you feel the future of the Second Amendment holds for us? Question mark. Culture, technology, laws, responsibility, etc. That was the hmm. question I posed. We're going to go through a couple of uh, questions here. I'm just going to sort of jump into a few of them blind here. All right. Uh, RoboStan is a place in the metaverse coming soon. That's the Twitter handle. Okay. Or name. Uh, that's RamboStan.com. All right. He's asking... Got some, it's got some free publicity there, buddy. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> he says that I see Bitcoin slash crypto having the same goals uh, when you get over the hype and really into the core values and outcome of Bitcoin, for example, as the Second Amendment slash gun community, personal responsibility and defense against tyranny, both financial or violent. What are the barriers and solutions to bridging the two communities, in particular in getting the crypto bros to advocate for 2A and for the tactical dudes to learn and understand the value of Bitcoin slash crypto, it seems there's a, a small but mighty subset of each group that overlaps. Uh, each group, crypto and 2A, needs better positive narratives in mainstream culture, and each of them synergize communities to empower the other, potentially. Again, they have the same end goal, freedom from tyranny. That's a very great point. Uh, we mm-hmm. look at our friends at Firearms Policy Coalition. They've actually begun to accept cryptocurrencies as a form of donation. You're also seeing ammunition companies and some retailers accept cryptocurrencies as forms of payment uh, for uh, goods and services. You're seeing trainers mm-hmm. accept cryptocurrencies uh, for exchange of, uh, of their services. You're seeing so, payment platforms like Cash App that deals in Bitcoin as well. So if I was to pay you for something, I could use Cash App to transfer Bitcoin to you. Mm -hmm. And I can buy Bitcoin with it as well. That's right. And I believe what he's really trying to articulate here and and what I'm reading into is that those communities are very similar, right? People who invest in cryptocurrencies at such a level are the same type of people that, you know, maybe they don't trust what's going on. They're worried about what's going on. They don't want to place their the protection of their assets. In our case, right, the Second Amendment, the protection of our rear ends, mm-hmm. if, I, if I could make that correlation right, we uh, want to take the responsibility of, of protecting ourselves into our own hands. Cryptocurrency is sort of the Second Amendment of the monetary system, right? So we look at that situation as, well, we don't trust the monetary system. We don't trust all of the inflation and all of the uh, supply and demand issues and and this artificial inflation that we're seeing. We just got done doing an entire podcast about that subject. So if you haven't watched the video or listened in on podcasts, go check it out. We talk about that very concept for an entire hour. So I'm not going to get in that on this particular one, but that's a great point. So let's move on to the next one. I would also just add on to that, that the part of the question was, how do we get the Bitcoin bros to, you know, accept the Second Amendment crowd or the, the gun community. And I would say that, you know, don't don't try to make it a thing because it's, those two things aren't mutually exclusive. Cryptocurrency is cryptocurrency and guns are guns. Don't look for validation by saying, well, are you trying to use the Second Amendment community to validate Bitcoin? And is Bitcoin trying to use and vice versa? They're two separate things. So yes, it's great that both of them exist. And you know, just don't try to make those two things mutually exclusive. Like you you have to use crypto to buy guns and you have to, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah. Cause the way that the question was was positioned was that it's almost like one 
community was looking to the other community for validation. And I don't think that that is that really is necessary. I wouldn't say validation as much as I would just say um, the normalizing of using those particular payment methods for things such as the commodities as guns and ammunition and training and all. And you, mm-hmm. to answer that question, you are seeing a ton of companies that are accepting cryptocurrencies as forms of payment. And over time, right, just like the Second Amendment uh, took, you know, the culture of the Second Amendment and gun ownership took a long time to come full circle to what we see now. Years. You're also going to see the same thing for alternative payment methods and cryptocurrencies. It's going to take a little while for uh, them to fully accept it culturally, not just, let's just say, the Second Amendment community. That's too too tiny of a scope. The more broad scope would be, all right, can you go to the grocery store and swipe your Bitcoin card and buy groceries with Bitcoin? That is what it's going to take. That hometown level normalcy where you can just swipe a card and use it just like you would any other type of a debit card. Yeah. Tap the phone. Boom. So until Bitcoin becomes a super widely accepted form of payment across, like we're talking, you can put some card in a vending machine or or a a gas pump and get gas with it. Like at that level, just like like you've got American Express and the different uh, card carriers. If you wound up having some Bitcoin card that you could swipe everywhere, well, then, yes, absolutely, absolutely, you're going to see that happen. All right, let's move on. Uh, 1776life1 on Twitter says, I'd like to see a deep dive into how the Second Amendment is a God-given, predetermined right. The Constitution merely recognizes this right and clearly instructs the government not to infringe. This means the right cannot be amended away because it was never granted by the text. We sort of already already mentioned that in terms of the Supreme Court cases and the totality I will just add that, you know, we have to really hope here that the Supreme Court is going to see our way on this. We have to have faith in the courts when it comes to these Supreme Court cases going our way. But whether or not you have um, faith in the courts or whether or not you have faith in the government or or men in general, as long as you still have faith in your creator, then I suppose that's really all you need in, in relation to your, uh, your, your, your comment. That is right. Let's see. Um Let's see. Uh, your fear of Chud, number one, Mistral comment uh, on Twitter asks, there will be a call to action against the 2A as a health crisis. Well, that's an interesting comment. Well, you I mean, weigh in on that, Matt? Yeah, I mean, they you're already starting to see that with uh, some of the reporting that used to be that you would go and get your, you know, all of your gun statistics and everything came from the FBI. So up until about 2000, I think the last one was around 2018, 2019, all of the st- statistics uh, for the US was were FBI statistics. Now you're seeing a call to where the CDC would be the uh, de facto statistics holder for firearms, whether it's shootings or discharges or whatever it may be. So I do, uh, I do honestly see them kind of going in that direction, trying to hand it over to the CDC, so that way they can use it as like a public public crisis type deal. That's that's a good point. I have seen that. I think that they have always tried to you know circumvent the law any way they can to try to find little you know, little loopholes to get around certain things. I think that's a very legitimate concern because look at red flag laws, getting back on that subject, you know, 
would a politician have thought, you know, 30, 40 years ago that, oh, we could just have some de facto phantom court that you're not even privy to the conversation, just say, well, this person's a danger, and then they get to come collect their guns. So politicians and lawmakers and the courts, they're getting a lot smarter and finding ways around um, certain codes and, you know, laws and edicts and what have you, right? So that is quite scary. We see that in a wide variety of different situations, okay? Not too many years ago, the ATF um, wound up being under the DOJ instead of the IRS. For a long time, the ATF is under the IRS because, you know, they collect taxes. When they collect a tax stamp, that's a tax. So they went from being a tax-collecting entity, so to speak, to now being under the Department of Justice. Now, under the wheelhouse of the Department of Justice, they can totally um, get into some really scary legal territory that they previously could not get into. And I've always asked myself, well, how is... So when they went under the DOJ from the IRS, did their mission change? Okay, so if their mission changed... Or if the direction that they're what they're trying to accomplish changed, let's just say uh, the arbitrary, uh, you know, uh, let's just say the way they perceive laws, right? You know, they interpret can just, them. They can just arbitrarily yeah. interpret a law however the heck they want, right? That that gives them that kind of power, right? So the president can say, "Hey, DOJ, we want you to interpret it this way and look at it this way," and then they can go, "Well, you know, even though that's a cat, we're going to say it's a dog." I know that's real simplistic. But they still collect taxes. So if their mission changed, are they still a tax-collecting authority? I mean, uh, can you tax a right? Well, the Supreme Court, what, Mayberry versus Madison, there's a few Supreme Court cases. I'm not going to try to to spew them off the top of my head, but there are Supreme Court cases that have said, hey, you know, you can't have a polling tax. You can't tax a right. Many situations where in the past they've tried to disenfranchise a person's rights by requiring a fee to exercise that right. And our Supreme Court have already determined in the past that you can't require a tax uh, to exercise a right. But what is a $200 tax stamp but a tax to exercise a right? And getting back full circle on this uh, Supreme Court deal, I would like to see that be challenged in the Supreme Court. You know, having to pay a $200 tax stamp to um, keep something that I own, for one, right? They say, well... This bump stock is now an NFA item, for instance, which is something they're totally trying to push through, uh, through Congress and through the lawmaking process. All right, say that they got their way, right? So what, I have to, if I already owned a bump stock, I'd have to pay $200 to keep it. So I'm having to pay $200 to exercise my Second Amendment rights. That doesn't hold constitutional water, not in a million years. So to see them going, all right, to say that this 2A thing would be a health crisis That would just be another way that they would be weaponizing an alphabet agency in order to find a workaround of some sort. And I wouldn't put it past them. So great comment. Yeah, I agree. And that's your they're trying to use that in the super high density areas like Chicago, where you're having 15 to 20 people die over a weekend. And most of them are juveniles. So if you roll that into the CDC, then now it becomes a public health crisis um, affecting children, which is like a double whammy. Yep. So, you know, you're really seeing a huge change in just the culture of gun ownership in general. We kind of discussed that already. There's a lot of challenges on the legal front and uncharted territory that, you know, we're going to be experiencing and dealing with. 
and uh, sort of navigating here over the next several years, probably decades, okay? Decades, I would decades, say. Decades, I would say. We're going to see a lot of young politicians, freshman politicians, begin to be really closely vetted for their voting records when it comes to the Second Amendment. So we can't be ignorant on that. We've got to make sure we're holding their feet to the fire and letting them know what we want. And that way they know who their constituents are and what we want. So that's important. Don't forget to always make sure you know what is going on with your reps so they know where you stand. Also, supporting your your 2A organizations, FPC, GOA. I know some of you support the NRA. That's fine. Um, I'm not a big fan of the NRA. We're not going to get into that in this particular... <laughs> we don't have enough time for all the things that, that they've had a hand in over the years that have not really helped the cause of gun ownership. Uh, we're not going to get into that, but I do support the Firearms Policy Coalition Gun Owners of America. So find an organization to become a part of. That's a super important thing. You don't have to donate a lot of money. Donate five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month. But if we get millions of people together to join FPC and just throw in a few bucks, throw your five bucks in the hat every month, it'll go a long way to helping fight these court cases and ultimately get these things to go to the Supreme Court is our, our overall goal in terms of our ag- advocacy and our actual, you know, grassroots efforts we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, and just when you're vetting your local gun organizations, just be very careful. Do your due diligence because there are Georgia is fortunate enough to not uh, be one of the states that uh, mandate training in order to get your CCW permit, um, but there are a handful of states that do require uh, third-party training by trainers. Be very careful with some of those organizations because some of those organizations actively uh, fight against reciprocity because that's their that's their job. So, and you'll see this in some other. I'm not going to go too much into it, but there are trainers and organizations that are saying, "Hey, this is how we make a living. We need this mandate in order to remain em- employed." So they actively lobby against any type of you know. Uh, legislation that's going to remove that mandate. Uh, I definitely don't support that. And I don't think you, if you live in those uh, states or towns, should support that either. So you might want to just do your due diligence. That's right. Absolutely. So I think we covered the ground quite well. I mean, there's still a lot of uncharted territory that we're going to be getting into and uh, we're not out of the woods yet. I, I Honestly, I think we're just starting to see the yeah, trees. Not even, not even close. We're starting to see the forest for the trees as a community, and I, I think it's important we keep the momentum and the energy going, and uh, and we use it um, to our absolute best effort that we can. And I think the community is coming together across a wide variety of different political spectrums, even and it's growing, and it's growing. And I think it's important that folks uh, come together in unity over what the Second Amendment provides all of us in terms of our security. And, uh, and I think once we do that and, and sort of just ignore the noise and the propaganda that surrounds what the mainstream media and the government and all these pundits and talking heads at large want you to think about gun owners, I think we'll be able to kind of move away from that and move forward as a community. And I think it'll make us a stronger overall community as time goes on. So thanks so much for tuning in on this particular podcast. If you're here on YouTube, thanks for watching. Uh, this is a great subject. And we'll probably dive into a few of these things that we talked about in more detail in future podcasts. Um, thank you so much for supporting what we do. Please leave us a great review on uh, the various podcast platforms. Also, if you're here on YouTube, make sure you uh, subscribe, like, click the notification bell. 
Go over on Ballistic Inc. Pick yourself up a snazzy t-shirt. That's uh, one way yep. you can support our efforts. They're great shirts. They are, and they're made by an incredibly handsome man. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> that, it, he, it's him that makes I, I'm part of the team. That's yes. right, in case you don't know. <laughs> All right, but anyway, pick yourself up a snazzy t-shirt if you want to support us. Have a great week. We will see you next week here on LLP. See ya. Have a good one. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Pursuit. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. Be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. You can support us over on Ballistic Inc. by picking yourself up some merch. And remember, guys, dangerous freedom. Have a good one.